Well, again, good afternoon. Glad you're here. Well, this week we've got a shorter portion than we had last week. And uh, so we're actually going to break it down into three different sections as we work through it today. Uh, but it is a shorter section. You'll appreciate that. Uh, I've been losing my voice today. So at some point my voice might crack like I'm going through puberty. Feel free to laugh at that. I would if I were you. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen, but it probably will. So anyway, uh, today in our text, though, we've got this basic thesis statement in the first verse. Uh, and then after that thesis statement, it's a song that the birds sang in the 1960s. And you all know what that is, right? Laura's been anointing me all week because I've been singing in every place I go, but I don't know it that well. Um, it's actually this poem that's been written by, by Solomon, by the author of this. Uh, and, and yet that bird song, uh, or the song by the birds, is is this poem almost word for word. I was surprised. I actually turned it on and listened to it this week, and it's almost word for word uh, for this, which is really amazing because it was the number one song in the nation in 1965, uh, which is great that here a song that's almost word for word scripture was number one on, on the uh, billboard or whatever it was called charts at the time. Uh, just to put that in perspective, today the number one song on the charts is something called Uptown Funk. Um, I did look at the lyrics. They are not as high quality <laughs> as the bird song. So, uh, but that's not the point of this. Uh, it begins with this thesis. There is a poem. Uh, and then there's this, this statement about work and a reflection on the poem. And then finally this conclusion statement that kind of brings it all, all back together. Uh, and we're going to start with this, this thesis statement, the poem. And then, we're, like I said, we're going to uh, go through that and unpack it. And then we're going to read the next two sections and we'll move on from there. Uh, so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, um, we'll read verses 1 through 8 first. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear down and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, enlighten our minds this day to not only learn about you, but to be amazed at who you are and all that you've done. May the truth of who you are drive us deeper or into deeper worship and greater joy. Uh, Lord, thank you for the way that you have loved us. May these ancient words today nourish our souls as we feast upon the scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing Solomon says here is this thesis statement, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. I think as we read this, we, we tend to want to add this phrase, the word appropriate in there. Um, and to every line of the poem that, that follows that, we want to add this word appropriate. We want it to read something along the lines of, for everything there is an appropriate season and an appropriate time for every manner under heaven. And then we want to read this poem as, as though it were encouraging us 
to discern the appropriate time for each of these situations. Uh, what I mean is we want to read verse 4 here, which says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, as though it's encouraging us to determine which situation we are in so that we can respond appropriately. When we read it this way, though, we, we apply it with things like, if you're at a funeral, that's an inappropriate place to laugh. Hopefully we all know that. At least it's usually an inappropriate time to laugh. Um, however, this is an appropriate time to weep. And it's good for us to weep when appropriate. Uh, we might also point out that the appropriate time to laugh is when a friend tells a joke. Uh, which of these, uh, which of course leaves us wondering about when our friend slips. Is that an appropriate time to laugh or appropriate time to weep? Surely you think that way too. Here's what I want you to understand about this. The Bible does talk about how we respond to things in appropriate manners. Uh, even in 1 Corinthians 12.26, we find a, a similar statement that speaks about the appropriate response for the body of Christ, the church, when someone suffers uh, or is honored. It says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Scripture is full of wisdom regarding what it is appropriate, uh, what is an appropriate way to respond in all sorts of events and times. However, this poem, this poem before us in this text, has nothing to do with our discerning the appropriate times and responses. In fact, the point is quite the opposite. The point is that God has determined the times and events. The point is that God is absolutely sovereign, and, and God even shares with us why he reveals his sovereignty to us, which we're going to get to in the third section. But notice the major theme here to begin with is, is time. Hopefully you picked up on that while we were reading it. Uh, 28 times in just those seven verses uh, of the poem, it is uh, the word time is used. Uh, the poem is parallelism, which is a way of using repetition to say something similar in two different ways. Uh, the two lines of each verse are connected to each other. Uh, also, the first half of the line is contrasting the second half of the line. It's, it's like bookends to any given situation. And so uh, let's look at this poem, and we'll work through it to see a bit about what, what's the poem saying. Uh, verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Well, who determines the time that we are born? I mean, we tend to think our, our parents do to some regard. Yet, conception's not automatic. Uh, God ultimately determines if that happens. Also, the, the whole pregnancy is this fragile process. A thousand small developments must happen correctly for this to go through. And, and with all we know today, we still can't predict the exact birth uh, of a child, uh, which I've learned that no mother appreciates. We see that God is sovereign in, in, the, in the birth. Um, in the birth of Isaac, Sarah was well beyond birthing years. And yet we read in Genesis 21:2, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. So the back half of the first line then in this verse 2 of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to die. Honestly, if we determine the appropriate time to die, what would we decide? Most of us would go with never. But the point is that God determines when we die. It's the same thing we see in Job 14.5.
There the author is, is rambling to God about being human, and he says this. He says, since his days are determined and the numbers of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. And then Psalm 139.16, in the same way, considers that God has determined the length of our life. God has done it. He says, your eyes saw my, and speaking to God, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And I know some of you are the, but I've thought of an exception type, right? Meech is one of those. I think of you sometimes, Meech, when doing this. Uh, you're thinking, no, there's an exception to that. I could end my life today if I wanted to, right? Maybe you could. But I can't tell you how many times you hear stories of that, personal stories of, of failed attempts that I've sat and listened to. Uh, some even involving ways that you'd say, no, that will absolutely end your life. Praise God for the failures in these cases. But also note that God really is even determining the day of our death. The second line is similar. It says a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Sure, you could plant anytime you want. Any farmer could decide to plant his corn tomorrow if he wanted, right? Uh, come summer, though, he would not be a corn farmer. He'd be a dirt farmer. That's the way it is. There's an appropriate time to actually plant things. We can't go around that. We can't just decide we'll plant anyway. Uh, and so what you need to see is who really determines the time to plant. Well, who causes these plants to grow so that there is something to harvest in the spring or in the end of the summer? Uh, in both cases, the answer is that it is our sovereign God. That's who. Why don't you look at verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Certainly the situation of self-defense is a time to kill. Perhaps a war situation would be a time to kill. And yet, there will come a time to heal, a time when we seek to help those who have been an enemy in the past. Uh, and then the second line of verse 3, uh, it really should be taken literally, uh, along with the rest of this particular poem, is to be taken literally. Uh, certainly old buildings who have aged and need to be broken down so that new ones can be, be built uh, and used for specific purposes. Uh, Laura's dad, I can remember, was in the Marines and sitting with him one time as he told us about the, the war in Vietnam. And uh, we expected to hear all these, these stories, and he said his job was real simple. It was to blow up bridges. Uh, and he and his team would just go around and destroy these bridges. They would just blow them up one after another. And, and his point, as he began to explain this, was it was necessary for us. Uh, that was what our job was to do, was to destroy the bridges so people couldn't cross them. Uh, and yet, you know, he says after the war, that was someone else's job to come in and now build up these bridges that had been destroyed. Verse 4 reads, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Uh, to mourn and to weep go together, as do laughing and dancing in this. Uh, we know that in the fallen world that we live in, God has put us in situations where our hearts mourn and our eyes weep. Even Jesus felt this. In John eleven thirty five, 35, after Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, Jesus' response is recorded, and it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Uh, What's interesting is Jesus explains, even before Lazarus dies, that his purpose for all this was his own glory, and, and that it would not end to death. He knew that, and yet here he is crying at this situation. You see, God determined the events leading up to this, causing all this weeping. A time of mourning and a time of weeping caused by pain are really not events that we desire in our life, and yet these are events that God brings into our lives. 
But let us not forget the other half of this. God also gives us a time for laughing and times for dancing. In 2 Samuel 6.14, after the Ark of the Covenant is returned, uh, we observe that King David is said to have danced before the Lord with all his might. It's the highest ranking man in the land. Dancing before the Lord with all his might. Because that's the event that God has caused to happen as the ark returned. I grew up in a family of boys. Uh, we should have, but we didn't dance ever. That was not something any of us did, sat around and did. And now having two girls, I've found that uh, for them, the entire world is a dance floor. There doesn't have to be music, doesn't have to be anything. It's reason to dance. Uh, and I understand here that, that God in his sovereignty has given us reason to dance. We probably need to realize that more often. Uh, for all the terrible effects of sin on the world, it's still an amazing place that he has placed us in on this planet. Verse 5 then attempts to, uh, tempts us rather to find an allegory. However, it means exactly what it says. Verse 5 says, A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. It literally means gathering stones together. And I know that seems weird to us because it doesn't fit anything that makes sense to us. But during times of war, invading forces would scatter rocks across a farmer's field. And the reason they would do that is it would prevent them from being able to farm very well. It would make it a very difficult task for them. Uh, that was the scattering of these rocks. After the war, one of the first things they did to get society or culture back to being able to produce food was to gather these stones together, to pull them out of the fields so that they could easily farm again. Embracing, in the second line again, reminds us that there are events that make us not wish to embrace another person. And there are events that give us a desire to embrace another person, to have that closeness. Verse 6 reads, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. You know, we search for people, we search for things, and, and then a day comes that that search must stop. It's lost. Most of us can relate to that second line. Uh, we keep more than we need to, but, you know, life has changed. You probably don't need to hold on to those old cassettes of the Spice Girls anymore. These are things that you realize, okay, it's time to get rid of these things. Uh, a lot of these things, we want to be something incredibly profound, but they're not. Uh, it's these simple events in life. Verse 7 then says, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent, a time to speak. In their culture, when something terrible happened, uh, such as the death of a loved one, uh, they would express this by, by actually ripping or tearing their clothing. That was part of the mourning process. Uh, and then after a time of that mourning, uh, when it was time to move on, when it was time to recover, when it was time to, to return back to normal life, they would actually sew the clothing back together. And I know you read this, and you see this, and you start thinking, that is so strange. Why would you do that? Why not just throw it away and put on another shirt? But understand that clothing was difficult to make. Clothing was expensive. So they would actually go and sew that back together and continue to wear it. Um, <clears throat> it's very expensive. It's God who determined the event that causes the mourning. And it's also God who has sustained them through this event so that they might carry on after a difficult time of mourning. Uh, as far as the second line, I expect we've all been in the situation uh, where you're thinking, this is not the time. Will you just shut up? It's probably a nicer way to say that, right? Uh, the point is that God gives situations that cause us to be silent. And as with all situations, that uh, there are other situations that call us to speak up for our voice to be heard. 
In verse 8, then, it's the, the end of the poem. It's, it's actually inverted parallelism. I had to look this up, but I didn't know what it meant. Uh, the first part of the line goes with the second part of line 2 and, and vice versa. I know we've got some English people in here. I hope that's correct explanation of that. And it, it reads this, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So there is a time for war and hate, and there is a time for love, and, and, and peace is how that reads. Uh, let me remind you, though, that the point of this is, is not for you to discern the right time to hate or the right time to go to war. The point of this is, is that this world that we live in that is broken from sin is full of times where these things are true. And as sad as war and, and hate might make us, let us remember that God has given us peace and love as well. That we were at one time enemies of God. And that God has provided peace to us and for us in the gospel. Also that God has made a promise that we can trust because of this, because of what we're seeing here, because God has revealed and we now know him to be absolutely sovereign. That's why he can keep his promise. He is powerful enough to make these promises come true. In Micah 4.3, God tells of future peace. He says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This, this future promise of this peace. And I don't know if you, you noticed in the, the poem we were reading in Ecclesiastes, but almost all the negative things in that poem did not exist before the fall of Adam and Eve. Kill, weep, mourn, hate, war. And yet we see this sense of paradise loss. And even though, even though we tend to focus on the human side of these events, the, the more significant question that we should be asking this is, what does this say about God? What does this reveal about God? And at the most basic level, we see that God is the creator and we are his creatures. And part of that creator-creature distinction is, that our is our understanding that God has set the times and controls everything. And that's not an easy thing for us to understand at times. We're even going to see here why God reveals his sovereignty, why he tells us about this. Because the truth is, God could be sovereign and never let us in on that fact. Never tell us that that is so. But he doesn't. He chooses to do it for a reason. Now, these, these last two sections are the, a sort of commentary on the poem. And we're going to start with verses 9 through 13 first. Follow, 13 first, follow along. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In verse 9, we're seeing that question again, the question that keeps popping up again and again, and will continue to do so. What gain has the worker from all of his toil? And again, the answer is none. And still, Solomon points out that despite there being no gain, God has made everything beautiful in its time. You know, the time when tulips bloom in the spring is beautiful. Uh, the time when a child is born is, is beautiful. The time when Jesus died on the cross was terrible. 
but also beautiful. And that his love for his people was so deep that he would die for them. In our text, we also see that God has put eternity into the hearts of men and women. And that means that we have a sense here that there is life after death. That's something humans ponder. I don't know if you've thought about this. Your cats don't ponder what happens after they die. Cats don't ponder much. Dogs don't ponder it either. Uh, worms don't ponder or don't wonder what life is all about. Apes are not searching for meaning in the world for their existence. And despite God giving us this desire for understanding of eternity, we still cannot understand anything beyond what he has revealed. And it reminds me that we have this, this finite and limited knowledge. I think we need to do a better job of embracing that sometimes. Uh, yesterday at the men's study, we spoke briefly about the eternal nature of God, that he will always exist, makes sense to us. We can understand from now until eternity. Um, but that he has always existed is very difficult. We can't make sense out of that. Even someone where they deny the existence of God, um, we still have this, this issue of the first something to deal with, right? How is there creation of the first anything unless there's a creator? You know, we can't make any real sense out of that. And, and that's okay because God has not revealed that to us and it isn't for us to know. What we know is that he's always existed. And the end of this portion commends us to live life. It says do good, to eat and to drink, to enjoy work and uh, the work that we have to do. And to understand that that is a gift of God for us. The last two verses of this really help us to understand the point of this poem. Uh, listen or follow along as I read it. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people, people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. What man does may be temporary. Keep seeing that question over and over again. Our toil amounts to nothing. Um, what man does might be without gain. But what God does is forever. God determines the seasons, the, the weather, the lives of every person who has ever lived, the salvation of his people, the wars, uh, the times of peace, our tears, and our laughing. We see God's power over everything throughout Scripture. I'll read you a few. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Acts 1.7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Isaiah 46.9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Lamentations 3.37 Who has spoken, and it come to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Proverbs 16.9 The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps in these these verses all throughout Scripture, you begin to see this, and there's longer portions that just support the exact same idea. So what you need to see, Christian, is that 
God has determined the time and the events of everything. And the reason he does this, the reason that he reveals to us that he does this, is seen here in verse 14. I want you to look because you've got to see this. I'm, I'm going to read um, this word for word for you. It says, God has done it so that people fear before him. Did you get that? God has done it so that, that's the reason, people fear before him. Now here's the problem that, that we have with that. When, when we look at the world we live in, we observe that there isn't much fear of God. Let me give you an example. Not long ago, 2007, journalist Christopher Hitchens wrote a book entitled, God is Not Great. Pretty straightforward title. And in this book, he made this argument that God does not exist, and if God did exist, there would be no reason to worship him because he's terrible. This book became an international bestseller. In fact, it overtook Harry Potter on the bestselling list to be the number one book around the world. Um, talk about lack of fear. Lack of awe before our creator. But, but to be honest, that's the extreme. That's a man who is in such spiritual darkness that he can't see his own hand before his face. The bigger question is, what about us? Do you have any fear of God? And I've been asking myself that question all week. Do I fear God? Do I stand in awe in God? Do I understand the might and the power and the beauty of God? I mean, I know I, I fear man. That much I'm sure of. I fear what people think of me. I fear what would happen if we couldn't pay our bills. I fear a lot of things. But do I fear God? In Luke 12, 4, and 7, Jesus is speaking of how the object of our fear is, is wrong. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you of whom to fear. Fear him who, after he, he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And in this, Jesus is reminding them that the object of our fear should not be man, but God. And then he goes forward even. He, he, he supports it by pointing out that God is in absolutely control. Involved in everything, even the lives of these sparrows, which you'd think he couldn't care less about. And then he reminds them that as children of God, they are of great value. And that because of the gospel, even the one whom is worthy of fear, we need not be afraid of. That's what the gospel does for us. So, so let me make a distinction, though. The fear that we have is, is not because God is cruel. Anytime you use this word fear, we tend to imagine some, some tyrant, angry, out-of-control person. That's not God. Okay? God is in absolute control. But we, the fear we have is not because God is cruel. The fear we have is because God is holy. And we are not. Fear and awe in our text today go hand in hand. Solomon's goal in writing this has, has not been to convince the reader, reader to cower in a hole afraid of God, but for the reader to, to bow in awe of God. 
And that's my goal of preaching this as well. The, the difficult task then is that we, we can't just say this. I can't just say, y'all fear God. Go fear God. I'll see you next week. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. And that's why you can't just tell yourself even. You know, tomorrow I'm going to start fearing God. Tomorrow I am going to stand with awe before God. It, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like one of those math equations that are written on the humongous chalkboards that are like four stories tall. And I can stand there next to some brilliant mathematicians and, and they can tell me it's beautiful, it's beautiful, and point to it. And, and I can listen to them talk about the details and maybe even understand a little bit of it here and there, but my mind is incapable of seeing any beauty in it because I am mathematically blind. I might even tell them, you know, I, I'm glad y'all find it beautiful, but as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's just numbers and symbols on a board, and you both sound like idiots. What do you mean it's beautiful? See, the, the problem, though, is not with the equation. The problem's with me. It's not the equation that needs to change. It's, it's me that needs to be changed. I need a mind that can understand it, I, that can see it. That can see what they see. That can understand it. To see what's really there. Because they're not making it up. Um, because only then, only after that, will I be able to see the beauty that they see in it. And here's how it works for us in the gospel. God has done, uh, what God has done is, so, is to absolutely change us so that our way of looking at the world is, is changed. You know, we often refer to this conversion as, as the blind being granted the ability to see, you know, amazing grace, right? Uh, and, and suddenly we're able to know that we are sin, sinners. Suddenly we're able to, to like Isaiah in, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, as he finds himself before God, and we see this amazing statement, woe is me. Woe is me. You know, I hear that, and it's so foreign to us because we don't use terms like that. And so, pardon the language, but if Isaiah lived in our time, he might have said something like, I am so screwed. Just that moment of standing before God and finding I have nothing to offer. There is, there is no hope for me here even. And he gives his reason for it. And, and, and this is Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We tend to focus on, on how the gospel has forgiven our sin. And that's good because it's true. And it's glorious, absolutely glorious. But do we also know that it's given us the ability to see the most glorious and terrifying being in all of existence? What a text like we have today does is, is to help us believe just how amazing God is. Because remember, God's not trying to convince us that he's sovereign. He's not trying to convince us of that so that then we will be fearful before him. He's revealing what is actually true. He's revealing that he is sovereign over the world. And my believing it, your believing it, doesn't make it so, it just is. Just like you can tell me all day long that the sun revolves around the earth. You can even genuinely believe that the sun revolves around the earth, but that doesn't change the fact that the earth revolves around the sun. And so no matter where you are in your relationship with God today, this text is a call for us to see what is true. A call to, to bow in, in proper fear of God, proper all of God. 
And what we'll find is that sovereignty believed produces humility and awe and comfort. Humility and awe because God is great and we are not. And comfort because all of his power, with all of his power, he has chosen to love us and to redeem us from our sin. In the gospel, he has made us not just creatures, but his children. And I want to mention one more area where where God's revealed himself. We see this even in the world. We talk about general and special revelation. Special revelation is is where we really begin to understand God and salvation. But in general revelation, if we understand it through Scripture and what God has revealed to himself here, it becomes an amazing way for us to see just the workings of God in the world. A few weeks back, I was with Tim and our sons, and we went to the Cosmosphere in Hutchinson. There's this amazing space thing in the middle of Kansas. It makes no sense. Um, They have Apollo 13 there. I I don't know how they got it. I do know how they get it. I'll tell you some other time. Uh, But the whole place was just amazing. But there was this moment when we were there when when I felt my stomach just kind of sink at the vastness of God and and the smallness of myself. See, we sat in this, this planetarium like so many of you probably have done before, and, and they began to explain our solar system, and they showed us the size of these planets, and they, they compared the earth to it, and, and they told us why humans can't live on any of these planets, and you begin to think, wow, look at all this stuff. And, and then they showed us the size of our sun next to the earth, and you're like, wow, it's ginormous. Uh, it's huge. And, and then they showed us our sun compared to the size of the next closest sun, and our sun looked like a marble. We are floating in space right now. And that terrifies me, just floating in, in space. And, and the more they talk, the more I realize there is seemingly no end to this. It just goes on and on and on. And it's almost one of those things where you just don't want to think about it because it is terrifying. And you see, God created these unique planets and stars and solar systems and galaxies, and, and it all works. It's all orbiting and doing things and, and, and movement, just like he designed it to do. And I just kept thinking, why? Why do all that? God, why make all that? And, and then it hit me, because he's God. Because it shows the people that he created just how small we are. And just how huge and powerful and sovereign he is. And I I want you to understand this, that we might believe that we are masters of our own domain. But the truth is, every domain already belongs to God. And he is the master of every season and every event of all of space and time. And the question is, how do we respond to the truth of his sovereignty? I think we want to deny it. But I think we, we respond like this. We respond with, with comfort that God has it, whatever it might be in our lives, absolutely under control. But also fear of God. Awe of God. Unrestrained and absolute fall on your face worship of God who is mighty and merciful. And that's just one little area. And, I, and I, I mention that because even ever since doing that, the, uh, our, our, our new bedroom, I can see out my window, and I can actually, since I don't live in Houston anymore, I can actually see some of these stars. Um, and I'll see these stars off in the distance, and I just think, wow, we're so insignificant. And, and yet, Christ has, has come here and, and made it significant. Like, this 
universe is so ginormous, and, and yet we begin to, to see that, and it just gives us all of who God is. We need that. We need that. That's the fear of God, the all of God, the, the absolute amazement with God that we need as a, as a church, as a people of God. Let's pray. Father, we live but a short time, and in that time we have plans and schedules and expectations and Yet we know is that everything ultimately happens according to your time and your plan and your schedule. Help us find not frustration, but rest in your will for our lives. Help us to stand in awe at who you are and the works of your hand and the depths of your love for your people. God, give us fear. Give us awe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.